that was the best welcome I ever got from you guys. Can you please, I know that wasn't for me, okay? So can you please stand up? Uh, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you're wondering why is it that we do this, or why is it that I'm asking you to do this, this is simply the way we show reverence to God and His Word. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother, mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Jesus replied, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood um, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted that water the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests uh, have, uh, have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you acknowledging that every time we open the Bible, we are opening your word. We understand, Lord, that you... Um, that you already spoken to us. That our job, Lord, is to dig into the scripture and understand and believe what is already there. Therefore, Lord, we pray for the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you give us understanding. and That you allow us to believe. And you help us repent if that's what is needed. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say... You may be seated. So um, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez. As you heard, one of the uh, teaching pastors for the church, and I also teach uh, and lead the Hispanic congregation or the Hispanic group in our church. Um, and every time I come here, it's such a pleasure and a blessing. Um, for some reason, there's something special about TVC. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, I would like to say that it's the Holy Spirit and maybe you, but... Uh, but this is an amazing place to be, so I enjoy being here. And um, yeah, you could give God, yeah, you could give Him glory if you want. All right, the, the testimony which is saw comes from this man. His name is Sam, and he happened to be Sam is part of our church, and Sam is what we will call an example of a seeker. Um, a seeker is a person that has a lot of questions, but they're interested in finding answers. A seeker is an observer, someone that pays attention. Uh, to what other people have that he doesn't have or she doesn't have. 
Um, and just like Sam, they won't stop searching until they find what they're looking for. And I would say that to a certain degree, we are all seekers. To a certain degree, we all want something better, something more reliable, something that we need, that we know we need, but we just don't have. So from that perspective, every single one of us, believe it or not believer, we are all seekers, seeker, seeking for something. Now, Sam said in his testimony that what he was looking for was truth. And I think it's true. But I want to uh, I want to make an argument. I want to argue that usually what we want is not just truth. But we want what truth gives. There's a huge difference between information and what information gives us. Truth is not enough. What truth gives us is what we truly want. And I want to argue today, and this is the whole point of my sermon today, I want to argue that what we want with truth is the joy that truth gives. There's a huge difference. I want to argue that what we want is not just truth, but we want the joy that that truth gives. I actually, that's what I understand the text is, is talking about. This is the way I interpret this text, and that's why the title for today's sermon is We Are Seekers Searching for Joy. Um, so I have three points for you guys today. I always have three points, and number one is uh, the three things that we need, right? Joy requires a miracle. Joy demands a cross, and joy transforms a life. In other words... If you don't have joy, you have nothing. Joy requires a miracle, demands a cross, and transforms a life. So let's go with the first point, uh, joy requires a miracle. I, I want to start almost verse by verse at the beginning, and then I'm going to be jumping back and forth because I need to show you something here. But if you start in verses 1 and 2, the Bible reads like this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Stop there for a second. It seems to be like if this is three days after a journey or an event that is happening, but it's actually day seven in, in, the, in, the, in the first week of Jesus' life. Now, the number seven is significant, but I don't have time to explain there. But keep in mind that this is happening a Sabbath in the, in the Lord's day. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, in order for you to really understand everything that is happening here, you need to understand the context of everything that is happening here. So a wedding at that time and in that context was one of the grand events in life, especially if you were a poor person, which I think that that's what's happening here. This is a wedding of a group of people that they're, they're, they're not financially stable, if you will, right? And yet they're having this huge, amazing celebration. Now, typically for a Hebrew wedding ceremony, this, this celebration lasted a good number of days. Some people say that we could go anywhere between four and seven days of celebration. And this celebration included a parade. It included an invitation for almost everyone, everyone in town. Included, um, this is interesting, instead of a honeymoon, included an open house for a week. Right? I know that's a killer, but that was the idea, right? So this was a huge, huge celebration. Everyone invited. It was a huge deal. I would say 
that to a certain degree, this celebration was a bigger deal than the meaning of the wedding. That's in the context, all right? Now, it is also important to keep in mind that at this time and with this culture, this is what we call a shame and honor culture. If you come from a traditional family, and if you come from a traditional culture like Latinos or Asians or um, Asians and Latinos, um, if you come from those, um, you know that in those cultures, at least for mine, honor is a big deal. And your job and your responsibility is to honor yourself, your family, and the people in your surroundings. And to not honor myself, my family, and my context of people will be to bring shame to me, to my family, and to my environment. That's extremely important to keep in mind if you want to understand what's happening here. Now, I believe that in our culture and in our time, that's a little bit hard to understand because we are more leaning toward the modern culture side, meaning that um, we don't think much about community. We think more in terms of the individual. See, our culture has a hard time understanding traditional cultures precisely because of that. Right? Um, we, we are part of a world that people call the I world, right? So if we use, because this happened in a marriage, in a marriage context, if I use marriage as an example, you can actually see the difference, right? In a traditional culture, once again, you don't just take, make decisions about who you're going to get married by yourself. You talk to your parents, you talk to your relatives, you talk to your friends, you talk to the community, and then you decide if this person is a good fit for me. That's a traditional culture. That's still happening today with traditional cultures. In our setting, in the more individualistic culture, we don't ask anybody. You know, I feel butterflies for you. That should do it. Right? It's, that's the reason why people get married, for example, in City Hall. That's the reason why people go to Vegas to get married. That's the reason why many people choose a private wedding which... Basically, you have the people with you that they could, they could never speak into your heart. That's the main difference between a traditional and a, and, a, and a modern, you could say, day culture. Which, by the way, I think that that's something that Christians need to rescue. Because Christianity, at the end of the day, is about community. That's part of the reason why, as a church, almost every week we are pushing life groups. And we are saying, you got to be part of something. Because we believe that that's a... That's a Christian value. Now, let's go back to the text because if this is an honor-shame culture and the celebration was such a big deal, and if the celebration was not going well, it'll bring shame to the couple, to the family, and to the community. That's the only way why we, uh, we can actually make uh, sense on why Mary behaves the way she behaves. So look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now listen, if you don't understand the culture, you would think that these are just drunks. Right? But if you take into consideration the context and the people, this makes complete sense. Now we cannot read the tone into the text 
But because of the context, we know that this is an urgent thing. Apparently, these poor people, they had a limited amount of wine. And they probably invited more. Of, if they were kind of Latinos, everyone showed up even if they were not invited. That's, a, that's, a, that's traditional culture, by the way. Meaning that they run out of wine. And now they have an issue. Remember, shame. 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 It's something super awkward happened here because Mary was not the host of the party. That was not her responsibility. If you read well before, she was invited to the party. And Jesus didn't have any business here either because he was not the host of the party. He was invited just with the rest of the, uh, just as much as Mary with the, the rest of the disciples. Actually, if Mary had wanted to do that to protect the community and protect the couple from shame, she should have gone to the master of the banquet, which you could say that is kind of a modern-day host, right? Or to the bridegroom, because at that time and in that context, the bridegroom was the one responsible of providing everything for the wedding. But Mary doesn't do that. The question is, why? Why does she go to Jesus? And you must remember that Mary knows something about Jesus that nobody else does. Remember when the angel spoke to her and the angel told her before Jesus was born that he, that he was the Messiah, Jesus, the promised one of the Old Testament? She knew that there was something about Jesus that nobody else knew about. She knew that Jesus wasn't a regular guy. It was kind of weird to the rest of the population. Obviously, she doesn't have a whole understanding of who Jesus was at that time. But she understands this. That if there's anyone in that room that has the power to protect everyone from shame, it'll be Jesus. See, she understands that if there's anyone in that party that could do something to alleviate the pain, that will be Jesus. And that's why she goes to him. And sure enough, Jesus being Jesus, in verse 6, he says that he told the servants to take these six stone water jars, right? And he told them to fill them, to fill them with water. And now we don't know how is it that he performed the miracle. The text doesn't tell us and we shouldn't guess. We don't know if he touched the water or spoke to the water. We don't know what happened. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that he turns this water into wine. And verse 9 says that when the master of the banquet tasted the water, it was simply amazing. We see that in verse 10, and then we see it in verse, in verse 9, and we also see it in verse 10. This wine was exquisite, if you will. So and so good that he calls it the choice wine, the best wine. Which if you, if you read the context of the, the text, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you keep the best wine until the end? Like, we all know this, right? I mean, I'm not saying that you drink wine because that's forbidden. But if you were to drink wine, you would know that you never get the, uh, the cheap wine first, right? You get the best wine, and when people are drunk, you give them the cheap one, they won't know the difference. That's kind of what is happening here. That's the rationale here. 
And yet this man tastes this amazing water that is the miracle of Jesus. And he's never tasted like that anything, uh, he's never tasted uh, anything like that before. So after five minutes of all this explanation, you have to say, what does that have to do with joy? No, no, I'm not saying that joy comes when you drink a lot of wine. That's not the point. I mean, for some people, that's the case, but that's not the point of the text. I think that you got to pay attention to the word wine. Before that, look at verse 11. It says that this was the first sign that Jesus performed, the first miracle that Jesus performed. First miracle ever. And the word first there in the original can be translated as primary. The most important miracle. That's how Jesus started. And you would think, what? More important than raising a a person from the dead? More important than any of the miracles Jesus did, healing the, the lame. How is this a more important miracle than everything else? Well, it goes something like this. It is through this first miracle that we see that Jesus is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody to do anything. He does what he wants, however he wants it, whenever he wants it. It is through this first miracle that we see that he's the ultimate provider. There was a need, and he was the only person qualified to provide. It is through this miracle that we see that God provides in Jesus something. That Jesus gives what nobody else can give. That Jesus does what nobody else can do. What nothing else can do. And this is when the word wine comes in. Because we are, we, um, we ought to read the word wine as a symbolism. Not just as wine. And if you know, if you go through the Bible, you will see that there are hundreds of verses that describe wine as a synonym of the word joy. So it wasn't only about the drinking. It wasn't only about the party. It was the word wine symbolizes joy. Jesus brings joy. Jesus provides joy. Jesus is the one that in any party brings joy. Nobody else. So let me give you three verses here just to give, uh, kind of give you an explanation. For example, in Psalm 104, verse 15 says that wine brings gladness to the human heart. If you take into consideration that wine is a symbolism, then what the Bible is saying, that joy brings gladness to the human heart. Uh, Isaiah chapter 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come by wine without cost. That's an important verse because it says that the true giver of joy can only be God. And that that gift of joy is a free gift. It's by grace alone. And if it's a, a free gift because you cannot buy it, then you cannot earn it and you cannot work for it. Only God has to give it by grace, grace alone. And that that joy, just from one verse, is the one that truly satisfies. Now, when you go, one of the best verses for me here is Judges chapter 9. This, uh, the writer is arguing with him, himself and he says, Should I quit producing the wine 
that cheers both God and people, interesting enough, just to wave back and forth over the trees. Let me explain that one. He says that God is joy and that his joy he gives to people. And when he mentions the trees, he's saying that there's nothing in creation. There's nothing in creation that can give you the joy that God gives. There's nothing created. That's super important. Actually, if you pay close attention to all those verses, you see that those verses tell you all the things that we want, that we need, and that we're looking for. And why joy is such an important thing. So, for example, John chapter 2 tells you that any celebration, any accomplishment, anything big in life, if there's no joy, it's like if you only have noise. Just like a wedding without the wine, life without joy, even if it's a party, there's nothing. When you pay attention, for example, in the same verse, it tells you that everything good in life eventually runs out. Anything and everything good in life eventually goes away, just like the wine did. Any good relationship, any accomplishment, any title, anything, eventually everything goes away. From the same verse, it tells you that it is a foolish thing to seek in things and in people what only God could give you. It's just foolish to drink yourself away knowing that it's not going to do anything for you. From Psalm 104, when it says that joy brings gladness to the heart, means that there's actually nothing, no job, no career, no position, no achievement, no looks, no success. Nothing, nothing gives you real and long-lasting joy. From Isaiah chapter 55, when it says, come, uh, come you that are thirsty and buy without cost, it assumes that everyone is thirsty. Everyone is thirsty. And we continue to purchase and seek and create things that we think is going to create joy. You know, as I'm saying this, I got all these illustrations in my head of people that have said this at the end of their days. And I wasted my life doing all of this and conquering all of this and achieving all of this. And at the end of the day, I'm just as empty. So I want to give you a definition of joy. I didn't put it on the screen, so I'm sorry. You're going to have to memorize it. Here. This is my definition based on these verses. True joy is that which can only be given by God in Jesus by grace alone. That's clear. It cannot be purchased and it cannot be created. And it is a sense of completeness, contentment, peace, happiness that is not conditioned by circumstances. Did you get that part? True joy is that which God gives by grace alone. You cannot work it and you cannot purchase it. And it creates in you this sense of complete, completeness, contentment, peace, happiness that is not conditioned by circumstances. Meaning that it is possible to have joy when you lose everything. It is possible to have joy when you are in prison like Paul did. 
It is possible to have joy when you know that you're going to be executed like Paul did. It is possible to lose everything, lose family, lose health, lose everything, and yet know that you have joy. That's why only God could give it. That's the miracle. That's why joy is a miracle. Only he can do it. But it has to be given by him. You cannot create it, and you cannot purchase it. Now, the kicker of the text for me is this. That even though joy might be free to us, it was costly to him. Like everything else that God gives us, it's always free to us, costly to him. And that's why my second point, that's why joy demands a cross. Now, um, if, you, if you read the text well, you probably noticed that something super weird happens in the text. Because when you read verse 4, look at how Jesus responds to Mary's request. Woman, stop right there. I mean, if, if Mary was a Latina, I would have a brand new set of teeth right now. <laughs> Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And we would say, like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Once again, in our context, if you read it with your cultural lenses, you're saying Jesus is being completely disrespectful to his mother. But once again, I think that we struggle with that is because we read our, our own ethnicity, our own culture, our own preferences into the text. So I told you, if that would have been my mom, my mom would have been like, what? what? Other cultures would say, that's not nice, Hannibal. Time out for you. Go over there and think about what you did. <laughs> I did that with my daughters. That never worked. But you got to acknowledge that this is how we read stuff into the text. And we might think that this is kind of an aggressive thing, and maybe it was a little bit aggressive, but it was not disrespectful. The reason why I could say that this was not disrespectful, once again, is because um, we never see Jesus behaving in a sinful way ever. We cannot assume here that he messed up. Number two, we've never seen, that was the same word that Jesus used when he was speaking, uh, speaking to Mary when he was nailed, nailed on the cross. He called them woman. So I don't think that was the point, right? There, there, there had to be a different reason why is it that Jesus responded this way. And I want to offer two options maybe. Number one, I believe that the reason why Jesus responds to Mary like that is because he, this, this event here is marking a change in their relationship. This is the beginning of their mini, Jesus' ministry actually. And, and it seems like if Jesus is telling to Mary, yes, I, I am your son, and I was your son, but I'm also a Messiah, a Lord, and a Savior. Therefore, you cannot treat me as if I'm one of the boys. And I think that a mom would do that. My mom still does it. My mom goes to where I go, right? And she stops me in the middle of the congregation, and she requests things of me like if I was a little kid. So I understand that. But this was not her... Jesus being disrespectful is he's saying 
This is a new season. New era. My ministry has begun. And the second uh, reason that I want to offer is that when he responds like this, he's thinking about something else. See, every time you see the phrase, the hour has not yet, my hour has not yet come. Every time you see the word hour in the Gospel of John, it always talks about the cross. Every time in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the word hour. He's talking about the amazing cost that he's about to pay for the consequence of our sin. Every time. You can see it in John chapter 2, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 11, John chapter 12, and John chapter 13. He's talking about the crucifixion. Now, let me give you an illustration to kind of explain what, what Jesus is going through. Um, so let me use the wedding again. I'm going to use three different illustrations for a wedding. But, you know, when you go to a wedding, a wedding is always a mixture of joy and pain at the same time. Um, actually, I would say that there's only a fragment of people that when they go to a, a wedding, they have a blast from beginning to end. Let me explain why. Every time you go to a wedding, if you are single, that reminds you of the person that is not yet with you. So yeah, you're celebrating with the loved ones, but at the same time, you're remembering and saying, when is going to be my time? So that's understandable. Joy and, joy and pain. Now let's say that you're married, but you're struggling in your marriage. That wedding reminds you of the spouse that you don't have. So yeah, it's joy, but it's also painful. And let's say that uh, everything is going really bad in your, in your marriage. Well, that reminds you that that was a good day, but you no longer have that day. So it's always this combination of pain and suffering, the same, uh, joy and pain at the same time. And I believe that that's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. He's in the midst of this party, man. And he's celebrating with everybody else. And he knows everything that is happening. And he's happy for her and for him. But he cannot stop thinking about what is yet to come, which is his cross. See, he knows that the joy that everyone is looking for at that party, he has. But he also knows that that joy would come because of his personal pain. See, he's there and he knows that in order for people to drink the cup of wine and joy, he's going to have to go to the cross and drink the cup of wrath. He's right in the middle of the body. He knows that in order for people to celebrate, he's going to have to weep. See, he knows that in order for people to have a joyful wedding, he himself is going to have to experience a funeral. He knows how costly, how costly the gift of free joy is. And that's what's happening over here. See, there's nothing that Jesus does throughout his ministry in which he's not thinking about the cross. Because anything good, anything good we have, always flows from the cross. 
See, let me push it a little more. Jesus knows that the only way we can experience true, true joy is when we know that we are being forgiven and accepted. That's why David calls salvation the joy of my salvation. The only way we can truly, truly experience joy is when we receive what Jesus did for us at the cross. And it's because Jesus, because what Jesus did for us at the cross that we know that we have been forgiven, that we have been loved, and we have been accepted. The more that becomes a reality, the more joy we have. Now, it's an interesting point here because Jesus knows that the only way in order for us to be forgiven and accepted is if we come before God as clean people. Interesting enough that the cross is about cleaning people. That's why there's a humongous implication in this text when in verse 6, Jesus told the servants to use these jars that were used for the ceremonial washing. That wasn't because he didn't find any other uh, containers. He was intentional about saying, grab those jars of ceremonial washing. Use them and I'm going to turn them into joy. And that in itself is symbolism. This is what Jesus is saying. That the only way we can experience joy is if we're forgiven and accepted. And the only way we can be forgiven and accepted it's only if our sins have been washed away and we are declared clean in him. You see that? Now, let me use another illustration to make my point clear here, okay? Pay attention. Wedding. I've done, I don't know how many weddings during my time as a pastor. Just to give you an idea, in my first year as a pastor, 15 years ago, I did eight weddings in one year. Uh, it was a bunch of young adults, they were all desperate. So I helped them. Uh, but the idea is here is, is that I've gotten to see a lot of weddings. And I get to see the weddings from a place where you guys are not, where you guys, different, different position, right? I actually get to see weddings from the front. Now, there's a phrase that is used by people that says that every woman in their wedding day looks amazing. And some people think that that's a cliche. I think it's true. Like I've never seen, never seen an ugly bride, ever. And you know that beauty sometimes is subjective. But I could honestly say I have never seen a woman that looks terrible on her wedding day. And this is how I know. Because I get to see the bride coming in from here. And I get to see the bridegroom's expression. And they're never like, never. <laughs> never seen that. <laughs> that was not in the text. <laughs> I never see it. And I get to see that this lady in front of me, really close to me, and they always look amazing. Do you know why? Because she takes the time to cover all of her imperfections or her perceived imperfections. So she uses a little bit of makeup here and a little bit of makeup there. A little bit of hairspray here and a little bit of hairspray there. A little bit of an extension here and a little bit of extension there. And you know, <laughs> we talk after the sermon. <laughs> you messed up, bro. <laughs> 
And the, and, and the dress is designed to make you look like you want to look. That's why they go through diets and all that stuff. My wife did it. I'm so glad. It was her day. It was her day. She wants to look beautiful. The reason why I'm explaining all of this is because when she's walking in and the bridegroom sees her and everybody else sees her, all of her imperfections are covered. And she looks amazing. Why would Jesus use a wedding to explain to us what he did for us at the cross? Because, because of what he did for us in that hour, all of our imperfections are covered by his blood. All your shame, all your guilt, all your struggle, all your sin, covered by the beautiful and perfect blood of Jesus. That when, he's, when God sees you, not only he sees you as forgiven, not only he sees you as accepted, not only he sees you as beautiful, not only he sees you as perfect, but that in Jesus he truly, truly, truly delights in you. That's joy. You know what that is? I was thinking about this this week, and let's say that I have a really lame week. And I said the things that I was not supposed to say, and I thought the things that I was not supposed to uh, think and I and my motives were all wrong and I behaved the way that I was not supposed to and I did all kinds of crappy stuff. And to know that in the midst of all my filthiness and sin, because I am in Jesus because of what He did in that hour, God not only finds me beautiful but that He delights in me. He delights in me, meaning that He's never gonna look away. Meaning that he's never going to take my forgiveness away. Meaning that he's always going to see that I have been accepted. Knowing that he's always going to think that I'm perfect. Knowing that he always, he's always going to see me as a person that is completely, completely loved. Knowing that he sees me and he finds delight in me because of Jesus. That's joy. Can you see? Joy is a miracle because it can only be given by God. But the cost of the free gift of joy was costly to Jesus. That's why he demands a cross. Now my third point, and it's going to be really quick. What I want to show you is that once you have that joy for real, for real joy, everything else that really matter, matters less. It's not that they don't matter. Those things don't matter. But they matter less. What matters at the end of the day is who you are in Jesus. So my third point, let's talk about why joy brings tra uh, transformational life or transformer alive. Now, I told you at the beginning that there's a difference between information and joy, right? There's a difference between knowing about the cross, knowing about what Jesus did, and actually experiencing something to the point that it transforms you. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because in verse 11, Jesus says this, or the text says this, what Jesus did here in Cana of, Gal of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory. Pay attention to that word. 
and his disciples believed him or believed in him. Now, interesting there that the word glory, most of the time in the Bible, is translated uh, in so many different ways. But the main idea for me is always like this. That when you understand who Jesus is and what he did for you, you start understanding and believing that there's no one more beautiful than him, that there's no, nothing more amazing than him, that there's nothing more powerful than him, that there's nothing more satisfying than him. That you start to feel, the, the, the word glory literally means weight, you start to feel the weight of what it means to have him as a brother and as a savior. Like really, it sinks into you. I also think that there's a, re there's a reason why Jesus uses wine as an illustration. Because wine, like any alcohol, has the ability to get into your head and it get into your heart. It's intoxicating if you drink too much. Jesus is intoxicating. So the more you embrace him, the more you start to believe. And this is interesting because it says that after this, the disciples believed. And you got to ask the question, didn't they, didn't they believe before? Of course they did. But because of this, they believe more. And the word that is used there is also the word trust. Which in the Bible, we live and trust is always synonyms. Because of this, they trust him more. So I got three things for you. Because I believe that joy is one of those things that you got to fight for. So my first application is this. The only way you get to experience joy is when you learn how to meditate and ponder on Jesus and what he did for you. The more you realize that, the more you think that, the more you accept that, the more you believe, the more you trust, the more joy you would experience. But there is no joy apart from Jesus and what he did. Listen, joy is more than an emotion. Joy is almost like a conviction. Number two, the reason why we, uh, the Bible used the word believe there is to describe an experience. I told you, wine is like an experience. It gets to you. You know what the problem is with some Christians? They think that joy is one of those things that you're supposed to feel all the time or that you're never supposed to feel. But it actually, joy, it is an emotion. But it's an emotion that is different to any kind of emotion. And it's an emotion that doesn't come all the time. It comes every now and then. You know when it comes? It doesn't come when you work for it or you plan it. It comes when it comes. But you know when it comes? When we're doing one of these three things or when we're doing these three things. We're reading the Bible. We're praying or we're worshiping. You know, Adil Moody, after... Everything happened, and the fight that happened here in Chicago, he went to New York. He was trying to escape from, he was trying to, you know, ask for money so he could rebuild everything that he was doing. And he's got this encounter. He has a time with God, and he has an encounter in which he literally feels like something took over him. But it only happens a few times in his life. Did you know that in most revivals, in the history of revivals, there are always times like that in which you know, man, something amazing is in you. That's what I mean. When you cannot create it, 
You cannot work for it, but you can pursue it through Bible reading, praying, and worshiping. And number three, the way you fight for joy is you learn to identify those areas in which you're looking for a false joy. You must learn to identify what's producing this false sense of joy. And you learn to die to those things. There, the fact that we have joy is a miracle. That miracle is costly to Jesus. And that miracle could only be given if we trust, believe, and pursue. Amen? How about if we pray? Beautiful Savior, we are so uh, thankful for um, your mercy, your love. Lord, we, we, we are so thankful that your Bible speaks so clear about things that are so important. The fact, Lord, that the first miracle has to do with this concept of joy for me is amazing. In a way, Lord, I'm being reminded of this uh, Christian confession that says that my job, my primary goal in, job, in life is to know you and enjoy you forever. Please make of us people of joy. Allow us to sense and understand, but also experience. Allow us to see Jesus and him crucified and to embrace everything that he has done in such a way that regardless of our circumstances, we know who we are in you and we know what we mean to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say...